Welcome to X-Rated Movies. I'm one half of your hosting team, Matthew Fisher. I'm the other half of your hosting team, Ryan Whedon. This here is a podcast, a movie podcast by two guys who used to date and now they don't. Now we just take your smooth jam requests. <laughs> Claire in Wisconsin. <laughs> You're all in the air. I just broke up with my boyfriend. I don't know what to do. All I can do is think about him and I cannot think about him anymore. What am I going to do? So can you play... What's so funny about peace, love, and understanding by Elvis Costello? <laughs> you got it, Claire. But first, I think I'm turning Japanese. <laughs> I don't remember. Wang Chung? Wang Chung, yeah. Mm, I don't know. Uh, doesn't matter. Hi, Matt. How are you? I'm all right. How are you, Ryan? I'm uh, hanging in there. Yeah? Yeah. You went to the doctor today, didn't you? I did go to the doctor today. You got blood taken from you, right? All the blood. I looked over and I saw the vials that they had taken and I was like, that looks like a lot of blood. So you're trying to replenish those liquids that they took from you with red wine. Well, it looks like blood. <laughs> yeah, so exactly. That's how vampires do it, right? <laughs> they just drink red wine. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's like a uh, blood light. Um, so you'll get drunk extra quick tonight is, is basically what I'm inferring. Yeah. I'm already kind of like feeling it and I've only had four or five sips of this. Yeah. So this will so. be fun. I haven't eaten either. So <laughs> wow. get ready for a roller coaster. This will be a fun little trip we go on. <laughs> so before we get too far into it, uh, I want you to guess what movie I saw this week. <sighs> Captain Marvel. Uh, I did, but not that. Oh, <laughs> did you like Myrie's costumes in that? Uh, they were pretty good. Actually, the costumes in that were much more pronounced. Like, there, it was a bigger deal than, like, most Marvel Ooh, movies. Cool, cool, cool. Because there's, like, her trying to, like, pick out the colors of her outfit, and it's, like, in the 90s, so they have to, like, look like they're 90s people. Oh, and, okay. Yeah, so the costumes actually played a bigger part than most Marvel movies. So oh, that was right cool. on. Right on, right on. And I totally, like, waited, like, through the credits being like, all right, costumes, where are they? There she is! <laughs> she was the first in the assistant costumes. Nice! So. Right on. Well, congrats to Myrie. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. I don't know. What what did you see? Well, I was kind of hoping you'd have seen it, too. A little opus called Charlie St. Cloud. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> As it's being taken off Netflix, uh, um, I think today is the last oh, day. Oh, no. I, I missed it. I missed my chance. Uh, yeah. Was, after we talked about it the other day, I was like, God, I'm all excited for it. <laughs> um was it everything you thought it would be? Oh, and more. Okay. And more. Uh, there's ghost fucking. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, not enough shirtless Efron. Also, Zach Efron has zero charisma. <laughs> like, he is. Just a pretty face, isn't he? Yeah. And I didn't realize it until watching the movie. He's a pretty face and a lot of eyebrow. Mm, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. more than you'd think. I'm glad you saw it. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, is Ray Liotta the mom? <laughs> um, not directly, but he definitely plays a maternal role in it. He's uh-huh. a EMT. Okay. And the accident at the beginning, like, Zac Efron's, like, in the ambulance, and Ray Liotta's trying to save him. Okay. And the ambulance driver goes, give it up, he's a lost cause! <laughs> I'm like, what kind of fucking ambulance driver are you? <laughs> Good maybe God. maybe Zachy uh, beat him out in a sailing competition, oh, and yeah. he was just a bitter old EMT. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, it's mostly Zach Efron playing catch with his ghost brother, and huh. then oof, that's not the ghost that he. Fucks. Okay, oof, yeah, you, you had me worried. There's there for multiple a ghosts in this movie. Huh. 
Okay. Well, I appreciate the fact that you watched it for us. Mm-hmm. Oh, you'll see it one day. <laughs> well, speaking of last week, we had a brief moment on the Sweeney Todd episode where we were talking about getting shaves. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, I just jokingly said, I'm going to set up a GoFundMe for that, and then we'll get, you know, we'll get shaves. And well, the I, joke turned out to be real. <laughs> yeah, I have since set up a GoFundMe <laughs> for us to get fancy shaves. How long does it last for? Uh, I don't know. I just put it up. I, I really spent very little time <laughs> putting it together. So uh, if you go to the website, our website, and look at the Sweeney Todd episode, there's a link there to it. Um, feel free to donate. We'll be sharing it on social media and whatnot and things and stuff and things. We'll at least have a before and after photo. Yeah, we'll document it <laughs> in some way, shape, or form. But yeah, if you've got a few bones to chip in and uh, want to hear us talk about... Getting hot lather on our faces. <laughs> Someone did comment on our Twitter feed that uh, he was hoping that in the Sweeney Todd episode we would shave each other because he feels that there's sexual tension between us. Oh. A uh, rumor I want to squelch right now. <laughs> <laughs> if it was going to happen, it happened. This isn't a Ross and Rachel situation. I mean, we're just... You kind of sexual tension goes out the window when you're sitting on a toilet. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe for you. <laughs> oh, you're into Blumpkins? Is that it? I'm glad you know the term. <laughs> glad you didn't forget that from when we dated. That's your grinder handle is Blumpkin Patch. <laughs> Blumpkin Spice. <laughs> Blumpkin Spice Latte. Do we want to tell our listenership that may or may not know what a Blumpkin is? <laughs> Uh, no. That's one you can look <laughs> up yourself. They can Google that one yeah. themselves. <laughs> Might want to do that in a private browser. Yeah, not Just, safe for work. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, we have a GoFundMe to get shaved. Only appropriate places. It'll be all safe for work, of course. We're not doing anything unsavory. Mm-mm. Unless you want to chip in a little extra. <laughs> I'm not above it. Uh, Gotta make money on this podcast somehow. <laughs> And if it's weird shaving videos, so be it. I don't know. I got. I have like some moral imposition against like looking like a preteen down there. Oh yeah, I think it's gross. Yeah. But um, I mean, but you'll do anything for a couple shekels. Yeah. <laughs> you tried going to England and dressing up as a girl, which it doesn't work the, way, the other way around for some reason. Double standard. Everyone saw right through your share wig. <laughs> They were like, you there, young Ray lady. <laughs> Stay over on that side of the street. Everyone kept, Mr. Leota, can I have your autograph? <laughs> uh, well, you know, you know how we're putting out feelers for opening material? Because yeah. we're not good at coming Apparently up with it ourselves. A <laughs> uh, friend of the pod, Jessica Baxter. Oh, he, the linchpin. Who you might remember from uh, Wild at Heart and our Quick and Dirty on Mandy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, she said that we should talk about really disturbing things we've seen in movies that were not horror movies. Yeah, or not meant to disturb. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And when she threw that out there, I had something like just jump to my oh, same head. Same here, immediately. Well, you go first. What was yours? Birth. The Jonathan Glazer movie with Nicole Kidman. Uh, what was disturbing? I don't know. The movie left me feeling so uncomfortable oh. by the end. I There's like a scene where she's watching him play or something. And I just remember like, 
she has to convey a certain amount of like lust for this child. And there's just a lot. I don't know. The, the, the movie just made me feel really uncomfortable and disturbed more than anything by I, the end of it. I read a review of that movie the other day that was a uh, Kidman versus Kidman. <laughs> <laughs> not bad. Not yeah, bad. I, I liked it. It's been a while since I've seen that, but I've gotten an itch to rewatch it. Yeah. I feel like you're going to throw it on the podcast one of these days. It's on my list. Um, I don't know if I'm ready to get back to it yet. Yeah, it's a weird one. Makes me feel uncomfortable. Mm, 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 mm. The one that, like, disturbed me, it was a documentary on uh, a Jacques Cousteau documentary. Oh, okay. I can't remember the name of it right off the bat, but it was directed by famed French director Louis Malle. And yeah, it was Jacques Cousteau just doing his, his thing. And, you know, modern environmental documentaries or nature documentaries you know they go at great pains to like not disturb the natural habitat or to not interrupt the natural course of this environment yeah they did not have this in like the 1950s or whenever this was made they just like go tromping through the rose garden and army boots oh my god they're like holding on to turtles and being dragged around they like want to like see creatures that are like living underneath the coral so they just put a bunch of dynamite in the coral and blow what? the shit out of it oh my god and like all these dead fish float up to the top and I'm like well let's see what we got here that's messed up yeah and no they're all fine with it but no the craziest part was that they were like they have this like big ship that they like go sailing around the world on and they come across i don't know what what you call it a group of whales a herd do you uh-huh. call them a herd pod pod mm-hmm. <laughs> uh and there's all these like whales and the ship hits one of them and like cuts its back and it's bleeding profusely and then the blood attracts all these sharks oh my god and the sharks start eating this whale alive and the crew gets so upset with the sharks that they start hooking the sharks and fishing them up and bringing them on the boat. What the fuck? And trying to kill the shark so that they don't eat the whale. Who's, the whale's gonna bleed out and die anyway. Like, it got hit hard by that boat. But they try to kill the sharks by, like, chopping them with an axe. Oh my god. But it's like shark skin is thick and tough. Yeah. So they would hit it with an axe and the axe would just bounce off. Like, it was so disturbing, <laughs> but they just document it like this is just another day of sailing around the world. With Jacques Cousteau. Yeah, it was really crazy, and I was, like, upset by it while I was watching. I was like, I don't know how I should feel about this. Yikes. What was it called? I don't remember the name of it. I'd have to look it up, but it's, I don't know, it's in the Into the Brimy Deep or something like okay. that. But, yeah, Jacques Cousteau, directed by uh, Louis Maul. Yeah, it was just crazy. All right, you win. That was <laughs> that was terrible. Terrible. Ugh. Yeah, no, it was crazy stuff. Well, thanks for the suggestion, yeah, Jessica. Thanks, Jessica. I feel very uncomfortable now. Uh, if anybody has a movie that they've seen as an adult that disturbed them, yeah, let us know. To disturb, please chime in. Speaking of violent acts, 
today's movie revolves around a violent act. It's true. It's true. And that movie is 1948's Rope, directed by Alfie Alfie Hitchcock. <laughs> Ooh. Ooh. Alfie Hitchcock. No. Mm. Old, old Freddie Hitchcock. <laughs> this is our first Hitchcock flick. You know... I know that it's taken us, you know, was this 107 yeah. episodes mm-hmm. to get here, but I always knew deep down inside that this would be the the Hitchcock that we do. I mean, it was it was initially on my list like from the beginning. It's well known enough that, you know, cinephiles have seen it, mm-hmm. but it's not considered one of Hitchcock's like greatest movies. Not up there with Psycho or North by Northwest yeah. or Vertigo. Mhm. So it sort of inhabits a sort of like middle place, but I feel that for cinephiles and especially gay ones, like this is a big deal of a movie. Yeah, it's a big deal. 48, I think I said, right? Yes. Pretty amazing that that just like all this gay subtext just whoo, right by the censors. They were like, didn't even see it. Just breezed right past. Because this op- the opening shot of this movie, I'm like, this is a gay movie. Like, <laughs> who can't see Their that? Their body language towards one another. Yeah. I mean the the closeness, the proximity to each other, the way that they're holding David as he's being strangled. Mm-hmm. I was like, they're like cupping him and like holding him by the chest. Just a threesome gone wrong, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's gay. It's Alfred Hitchcock's first color movie. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, and it's got a little um, technical twist that he did where he it, like he he presented it as like a movie with no cuts. But um, it it has some. There's yeah. some hard cuts. There's one definite cut, and then there's other ranging between subtle and not so subtle yeah, cuts. Yeah, 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 yeah. But it does kind of give you the feel that you're watching a play a lot of times, I felt. Yeah, because it's a single camera. Like, you know, when we think of, like, multi-camera sitcoms, it's like trying to capture the feel of a play because a lot of those multi-camera sitcoms were like done in front of an audience sure cheers friends seinfeld stuff like that mm-hmm. uh versus single camera shows you know most of the uh sort of mockumentary style sitcoms of today arrested development 30 rock the office parks and rec those are all single camera shows mm-hmm. older ones include things like bewitch that was a single camera show oh, okay and like single cameras shows tend to be more cinematic because they have to like set it up like a scene, whereas multi-camera, they set it up like a play. Right. Like there's a live audience, there's four cameras facing the stage essentially, and they do the whole scene there. Right. And this, like really ahead of its time, is trying to do like a mixture of both. Yeah. They had to move pieces of the set and furniture out of the way to get the camera in. I was thinking about that a lot because when they push into like the kitchen to film that kind of stuff, they had to fit through these tiny little doorways and like you know if you think mm-hmm. if there's like a crane and like a crew moving all that like the the um pieces of the set have to move out of the way so they can do that and it's seamless yeah like and, th- and then not to mention there's this huge picture window in the back of new yeah. york city that changes from like late afternoon to nighttime with like lights coming on in the buildings the clouds move the sun moves like it's incredible those changes would happen when the camera's not on that but then it'd come back you know like camera be focused on something else but when it comes back that's when you see all these crazy changes happening in the on the outside and it's just really really impressive and it was done very subtly like it would you know 
we'd close in on someone's back and there'd be a cut of course like that but it wouldn't immediately cut to like the whole scene like it'd be yeah. two characters and the camera would kind of pan around it'd be like a couple minutes before you saw the background like you'd kind of have a minute to like live in this new scene mm-hmm. you know you'd get adjusted to the new light a little bit before you saw the background it was really expertly done it's hard to not get distracted by those technical aspects of it. Like the first time I saw it, I would think of those, but I was mainly focused on the plot. This time around, I had a lot of trouble focusing on the plot because I was just so fascinated with, they had to move this here and then they had to move it around this way. And like everything is so choreographed that it must have taken several takes to get, you know, everything just right. Yeah. But, and just like the way that like the camera moves around and sometimes it seems like it's, you know, on a dolly or on a track. Yeah. And sometimes it seems that it's, you know, more handheld, like when it's like going like through the hallway down to like the kitchen area. But there's just a couple times where it like veers and you can see down the hallway, but but it doesn't track them down the hallway. Right. Where I'm like, oh, this seems like a, a like a, a lateral tracking shot. Yeah. There's just a couple things like that. Or it's like when there's some zoom in or not zoom ins, but there's some close-ups that feel like the camera's pushing in that it's not a zoom in so it's like it'd have to be like on a dolly or something considering how much the camera actually moves but and everyone's still inhabiting the small space yeah that is just super impressive yeah the movie only got like middling reviews when it was first released and i wonder if it was because like people didn't know to look for this yeah and i I kind of see it some in some ways because like some of the acting is pretty like not great. I like it. It's very stagey. Like it's it's yeah. very much, you know, theater y. You know, they're playing for the balcony and <laughs> that's things my like problem that. with it. <laughs> uh, Especially Brandon. Guess I'm always excited when I give a party. You just wanted to punch him in the face, didn't you? <laughs> yes. Like, A, he's got one of those faces that you just want to punch, and then he's so smug. So smarmy. And, oh, you just hate him. He's the smartest guy in the room. (laughs) Yeah, I hate him. Yeah. Meanwhile, poor Philip. Poor broken Philip. Cutie patootie. Brandon's attractive, too, but there's something about Philip's broken nature that (laughs) (laughs) really draws you to him. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so... That's sort of like the main things that make this like Hitchcocky, mm-hmm. um, and he like Hitchcock himself has said that he feels like this was it was an experiment that he felt was like a failure. Yeah, and I I guess even a spectacular failure like this is still really watchable because Hitchcock is so confident in his experimentation that you're just along for the ride. I mean, it makes me think, like, what are other directors out there that make an entire film that's an experiment? Like, I, maybe, like, Alfonso Cuaron, like, you know, you, you could say that some of his movies, if he tripped one way or the other on the tightrope, <laughs> like, would have been a complete failure. Yeah. Like, if Roma didn't have so much going on in, like, every frame. Oh, you finally saw it? No. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> or, I mean, the other way... Where I think that somebody maybe is trying to experiment the whole time and failing is like Gaspar Noe's Enter the Void. Like <laughs> that guy spent his career failing at experiments. <laughs> it's different. I mean, he really committed to it and he tried something new, but it's terrible. But, yeah. um, you know, that's another example. 
And I'll say that like Lars von Trier definitely like would try a full thing or, or some of the early dogma films like a celebration is definitely an experiment like mm-hmm. a whole film. But I don't know, just, like Hitchcock was already like a well-known director at this point. Right. So to have someone like this far in their, into their career being like, I'm going to try this concept through this whole movie and see if it works. And they're like, you go for it. Yeah. <laughs> Here's a big name star. We'll throw Jimmy Stewart at you. Who Jimmy Stewart I like in this movie. I don't know if he's quite charming enough to pull off what the character is like there to accomplish. Yeah. You're like all Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> Can you imagine Jimmy Stewart talking dirty to you? <laughs> God. I dry up just thinking about it. Yeah. There's no amount of lube that can make Jimmy Stewart <laughs> sexual. He's also I think this character needs to be a little older. Like he seems too young to be their professor for some reason to me. Well, he was uh the the he's like their RA basically, right? Yeah. 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 Jimmy Stewart like he, he I see it like on the intelligence side like I could see him as someone who published philosophy books. Like I buy that part of it. Yeah. But He's also supposed to be sort of unpredictable and charming, like when he's, you know, uh, being introduced to everyone, and uh, and he's like, you must be Janet, and she's like, how did you know? He's like, Brandon spoken of you. Did he do me justice? Do you deserve justice? I like that, but I was like, I don't know if Jimmy Stewart's really charming enough to sell it. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I think also that when he's like making fun of Mrs. Atkins, yeah, uh, when she can't think of the names of stuff, like he's not quite selling that either. I once went to the movies. I saw Mary Pickford. I was mad about her. Didn't you love her? Oh, the Virgo type, brother, like all of these. Well, what did you see her in? I don't quite recall the something something. Or uh, was it just plain something? I feel like that called for, you know, Hitchcock's other staple, Cary Grant, who they they reference Notorious in this movie mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. when it's, you know, it's a, you know, Cary Grant movie. It's just something. And with that, with that yep. Bergman yep, lady. Yep. I was thinking that, too. Fun fact, that's uh, when I was preparing to watch this movie. I watched a documentary um, about Alfred Hitchcock called uh, Hitchcock Truffaut. Which is about their famous oh, interview. How is that? Oh, it's pretty good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've I like, that the one. most interesting parts of it to me were hearing other like directors talk about Hitchcock. Like it's mm. very interesting to hear like David Fincher talk about him, etc. Mm. But after that, I realized like oh, I've never seen Notorious. I oh, should check really? it out. So I watched oh, Notorious. It's so good. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Really oh, great. It's and so then good. you know he just peppers in these just amazing shots like. No big deal. NDD. Like the one that like goes from like the, the upper balcony end, into yeah, her hand, hand and there's yeah. a key. What the fuck? Or just even like when they're at the dog track and she picks up the binoculars and the reflection in the binoculars oh, is showing sure. something. It's just like small things like that. He always just like tosses in there and it's just like, you know, he was a silent movie director. It's it's easy to forget that Alfred Hitchcock started off, you know, he spanned like a huge amount of time yeah. as movies were developing, you know? Yeah. No, it's like by the time... He made Sabotage, maybe, which was like 1932 or something. Yeah. That was already like his 20th film. Yeah. Like, and he didn't, you know, he never wanted to be a director. He started off as like a graphic artist or something like that. Oh, right. And then like worked in every aspect of film. And then suddenly like one studio was like, do you want to try directing? And he's like, okay. Well, yeah, I've always heard that his favorite part about making movies was the storyboarding Mm -hmm. and that he felt that the actual making of the movie part was just coloring in his storyboards. (laughs) 
Werner Herzog says that storyboards are a coward's tool. Oh. Yeah. Very interesting. Well, because Alfred Hitchcock was notoriously, I don't want to say mean, eh, but... Notorious? Uh, he really didn't care about his actors. Mm-hmm. I uh, called them cattle. cattle. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And people would ask, like, what's my motivation? And he's like, your paycheck. <laughs> Um, Which would explain some of the like kind of crummy acting in this movie, I think, where they're like, they, I don't think they got a lot of direction in that department. He was sort of just like, you know, read your lines like you're supposed to. You're an actor. Mm-hmm. You do that part. That's your job. Like, who specifically do you feel suffered in the acting department? Uh, definitely Brandon. Okay. I did not appreciate his acting ability. Oh, see, I thought he was so smart. I mean, that's what it called for, because like... You know, he and Philip are the villain, but Philip uh, uh, like equivocates on his actions. Where Brandon's firmly like, "What we did is like, you know, not good because he doesn't believe in good and evil because he's so above it all." Yeah, but we, we need to get into that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, ha- the idea of having like an elite echelon of society that can murder like without punishment. <laughs> Whoever wants to be part of that echelon should be immediately banned yeah. from it. Yeah. <laughs> if it existed, it should be only populated by people who don't think it should exist. <laughs> I, I mean, for someone as smart as Brandon seems to think he is, wouldn't he realize that, like, if there was this setup, that everyone would just be kowtowing to this echelon to make sure that, like, no one disagreed with them ever or that, like, they never stepped out of line or that they'd check. Like, there would be no disagreement. There'd be, like, you'd cease to have any sort of healthy debates ever. Yeah. Like, you know. And, and they talk about, they're like, who decides who gets to be this person? Yeah. Or it gets to be in this And he's like, well, me. It's like, well, who decided that you get to be a part of yeah. this? Yeah, 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 yeah. And may I ask, who is to decide that a human being is inferior and is therefore a suitable victim for murder? The few who are privileged to commit murder. And just who might they be? God forbid you work in the service industry because when Jimmy Stewart was going on it, he was just like killing off bartenders and hotel oh, clerks yeah, like left and right. And have you had any difficulty in getting into our Velvet Rope restaurant? Frightful. A very simple matter. A flick of the knife, madame. And if you'll kindly step this way. Oh, no, a step over the head waiter's body. Thank you. And here's your table. God, talk about like white male privilege. Like, oh. It's like, uh, I think the, the character's full name is like Brandon Shaw. And I was like, oh, a waspier name I couldn't imagine. <laughs> this is a good point maybe to say that like this is based off a real life murder that happened. Yeah. Leopold and Loeb. Yeah. Um, it's a famous uh, murder case that happened in Chicago. And it's this, this is what happened. They thought that they were like above it all. And so they decided to prove it by like, they started off with petty crimes like arson and, and burglary and stuff. And they weren't getting... Uh, enough media attention so they're like well let's try killing somebody and they tried to like pull off this perfect crime yeah they killed a 14 year old boy yeah who was his second cousin like it's messed up so this is based on a real life situation where these people were like we are better uh and we should be able to get away with this thing yeah and we're so smart we're the smartest people in the room and we'll be able to get away which is such a weird kind of double standard it seems like because it's like they want to get away with it but they also want to be noticed for it it's like how how does that work i don't understand yeah there's a well it's like uh it's a little zodiac-y uh most serial killers don't want attention but like zodiac killer went out of his way to get publicity I don't know if Leopold and Loeb, if it's anything like the dynamic of Brandon and Philip, one wanted the notoriety and the other one was just too weak willed to fight against it. Yeah. 
but he wanted his brilliance to be appreciated. Gross. It's so gross. Yeah. I mean, Brandon, like, you really hate him. Yeah. Uh. I mean, also, it's downright cruel. I mean, that's one of the things that I like about the movie is that it really shows, like, the aftershock, like, the, you know, the parents are worried about David. Yeah, that really hit me this time through. Well, I, I mean, I guess we should say it starts off with the murder, and then they dump him in a trunk, and then they're in the living room, and then they're having this big party that includes that kid's parents. Well, his dad and his aunt, I guess. Yeah. Because his mom has a cold. And his fiance are almost yeah. as good as fiance. Yeah. And they insist on, like, serving food off the trunk that he's the body's hidden in it's messed up it, it, it's super messed up it's that's one of those things that, like as i get older i'm like that's so fucked up <laughs> but you were right though like when the dad like the worry starts to really register with him uh-huh. like i felt awful during yeah. those scenes because you could tell that he's really upset and then when he finds out what happens it's got to be just the worst and it's like the concern that like the father has and the janet has it registers with Philip, like the guilt really starts compounding on him. Then, yeah, doesn't bother Brandon one iota. No, like he's, he's a fucking fine with psychopath, that dick. <laughs> <laughs> he also like brought in um, Janet's ex to this party. Mm-hmm. Who it seems like he there's no other reason for him to be there other than to torture Janet. Yeah, like well, what's, I what's think your he, problem? <laughs> he was hoping that like they'd get back together. Why? Like, now that David was out of the picture. And to me, I'm like, God, like, you're so shitty. It's like you kill someone and you're trying to social engineer (laughs) this, like, couple, like, who already dated and broke up. Like, the free market already spoke on that relationship. (laughs) But I think the implication is that Brandon thought that the only reason why Janet left him was because David had more money. Right, 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 right. But but why would you care? Stop being a meddler. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, I know he dated Janet, quote unquote, but like (laughs) beard. Beard. (laughs) Actually, I feel like Janet was maybe the reason that he like turned to Philip. He's just sort of like, this isn't working for me because she's beautiful, but she's like, (laughs) she's funny. She's a funny one. You look lovely. I won't buy the diamonds all paid for. (laughs) Who's that funny? I never know when I'm being funny. Whenever I try to be, I lay the bomb of all time. I liked her when she was talking about, like, oh, what's this picture over here? And he's like, oh, it's a new primitive. Mm-hmm. And she's like, oh, isn't this picture over here also new? And then the they, they go into the other room away from the crowd. And she's like, this one here. And she points at the blank wall. She's uh, like, why did you bring him yeah, here? What the fuck? I don't know. I, I liked her coloring. Pointing at the blank wall immediately like tells you, like, oh, nope, she's pissed. Doesn't <laughs> like, care. Yeah. And she's just trapped you her dress got its own credit in the opening credits did you notice that no <laughs> it said like janet's dress by adrian oh cool yeah it was a pretty fancy dress yeah i, I noticed it there were some colorful ladies in this movie <laughs> yeah actually all the ladies in this are pretty fun uh there's mrs atwater yes and then uh the maid is mrs wilson yes and i kind of like i kind of like both of them a mrs little bit. atwater reminded me of uh what's the late is it margaret dumont in marx brothers movies like the straight-laced <laughs> high society lady that like is oblivious to everything i feel like she showed up to the party drunk <laughs> delighted to have you mrs atwater delighted to come dear boy i've been in new york two weeks 
Alice has been ill almost the whole time, and Henry is forever cataloging his library. Would you like some champagne? Yes, my father had a glass 11 a.m. every day. <laughs> it's a tradition I've upheld for 40 years. <laughs> Uh, yeah, she seems fun. If, if if she was at a party, I'd gravitate towards her. <laughs> yeah. yeah, she seems she seems like a cool broad. And uh, Mrs. Wilson, that's mm-hmm. the other one. Yeah, she's classic gossip. <laughs> and when, when she's talking with Jimmy Stewart and uh, like totally dishing everything. Yeah. Uh, and he's like, "Well, what do you suppose they were so upset about?" Well, now, Mister Cadell, even if I did know, do you think I'd tell? Well, I hope so. Not me. I'm like the great. It's like you've literally (laughs) spent five minutes dishing the dirt. (laughs) Of course you would tell him if you knew. Her life seems a little sad, to be honest. Like that part where she's like... We only serve champagne at Mr. Cadell's on very high occasions. Matter of fact, he and I once had a glass together on my birthday. And Brandon like bosses her around. She's like, what? Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Like you'll have to come back in the morning to clean all this stuff up because I don't want you to clean it now and she's like well i was hoping to have the day off it's like oh no that won't do too bad <laughs> okay all right yeah and uh, then they maybe move. she gets paid by the hour yeah maybe but you know maybe she had uh, a a sick relative she needed to visit in the hospital or something and maybe now she's, she's gonna like, you know go fly a kite you know <laughs> ride a bike around read a couple copies of time magazine yeah. <laughs> Sample some uh, some different pâtés. Yeah, yeah. She seems to know which ones were the most caloric. <laughs> <laughs> Janet, stay away from that one. <laughs> but then she tells Philip, like, eat the pâté. You're yeah. getting too skinny. Maybe she's like a feeder. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, Blumpkins. <laughs> Feeders. She's like, you eat the pâté, Philip. <sighs> no, no. Let me... Get a bigger bite. A bigger, bigger bite. <laughs> really put that pate. Yeah, stack it on. <laughs> Here, put some butter on that pate. <laughs> um, speaking of Mrs. Wilson, one of my favorite uh, moments in this movie is when Mrs. Wilson is starting to like clear away the stuff that's on the trunk. And like there's dialogue oh. happening off camera. Yeah. Like just off to the right. But all we see is her clear slowly clearing it and we just see the it's shot so of the nerve wracking. It's terrifying. And yeah. it's so long. It like, takes forever. <laughs> I think that's kind of what, what makes this movie great. Cause if you think about a play, if you're watching a play, you're allowed to watch any part of the you know stage you want you can see any part of it but like when it's a movie that's like like a play he's forcing us to look at something and uh i really like that in that moment he forces us to look at the trunk and see how long it takes her to just slowly clear stuff off and you know she's gonna put start putting books in there at some point (laughs) so my big question of the evening what made Hitchcock see this and want to to capture the play aspect on this movie and not say Dial M for Murder, which is another play that he made into a movie. I mean, my guess would be just uh, that he saw potential in the technical aspects of it, like the time changing in the through the window he, he was like i could make that happen because mm-hmm. um, i get the impression that hitchcock was just such a visually oriented person mm-hmm. that uh when he would read something 
he just knew how he could do that. Like you get the impression that like he didn't take any time worrying about stuff. Like at, at least for me, like I just feel like he immediately knew what he wanted to do and then he would just do it. Okay. Like that's just an impression I get. Maybe it's just because he's, he gives off that or maybe there was like a, he's like up at night all night just wondering, how am I going to do this? <laughs> but um, so I imagine he just got certain aspects of this in his head of how he wanted to film them and then just like went from there. There is an aspect also of them feel being like trapped in this apartment. Mm. And so um, maybe he was just playing with that a little bit. I don't know. Do you have an answer? Well, I think he, he saw the play and thought that it could be a little bit better if it was a movie. Because there's a couple times and, and the, the uh, as Mrs. Wilson's clearing off the chest mm-hmm. is one of them. I think he thought that it could be mildly improved by having it be a movie and him directing the focus. Okay. And specifically that scene and also the climax, I feel, wouldn't necessarily be as effective in a play where you could see everything at once. Because after Jimmy Stewart shoots the gun, it's a close-up of the gun and then it pulls back and you got... You know, it's Jimmy Stewart in the center. You got Brandon off to one side and Philip off to another. And the way that it kind of does that slow reveal, I'm like, this seems more effective as a movie than it would as a play. Yeah, and I'm going to give some of the credit to the sound design because that is a really good sound design for 48. Yeah. The slow, like, as you're pulling out, it starts off like, did you hear gunshots? Did you Mm -hmm. hear him down in the street? And then as it pulls out, that's when, like, there's more and more people saying, oh, we need to call. And then, like, the, the sirens start coming and it's like, uh, it just goes really well with as the you know frame broadens, the mm-hmm. sound broadens kind mm-hmm. of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it really struck me because you know most sound design in the forties is terrible. So, <laughs> <laughs> like I think he really wanted to keep the feel of the play. I think he realized that the tension is better when it's unbroken, but that there's just a handful of times where having a cinematic eye elevates the material i would also argue the part where it almost seems like the camera's handheld is like when it's near the end when uh jimmy stewart's character rupert is talking about uh how he would theoretically commit a murder sure and it shows sure. to like it the camera's just like pointing to where he's would be pointing at the appointed time david would arrive i'd walk slowly out of the room into the hall and greet him tell him how fine he's looking and so forth and uh take his hat and I'd bring him in here make some small talk to put him at his ease probably offer him a drink and then he'd sit down it's pretty incredible the way the camera moves in that situation because it's normally that's something you could do today like no problem yeah you can do it on your phone yeah but in the 40s that was like a huge deal cameras weighed like 60 pounds yeah you had like two dollies moving or, you know, two grips moving it around. They could be named Dolly. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I like that scene a lot because the tone of Jimmy Stewart's voice tells you everything. Mm-hmm. You know, he's sort of whispering it, guiding you along and actually like walking in the footsteps of the two. And then when he realizes like he sees the gun, suddenly his voice changes and like you like the audience already knows like, oh, He's trying to save his ass here. Yeah. I don't know. It's a good oral clue to get the audience on the same page. Yeah. The homoeroticism. 
Yeah, that's really good. Which we only brushed over. Let's dig into it. (laughs) So, I mean, there's a lot right in the murder scene. (laughs) The one that struck me the most was uh, when Philip was like, Not just yet. Let's stay this way for a minute. Mm, I've heard that before. (laughs) This time around, I was watching it and I just didn't even think about the homoeroticism. I just assumed they were boyfriends. Like, I mean, their body language, like the way that they stand so close to one another. Yeah, they live together. And they're like going to be like traveling up. Like uh, Brandon's going to drive Philip to Connecticut that night. Uh Like (sighs) they seem to have the people they invite over color. You know, they're like coming to the party because, oh, they always throw the best parties. These two, (laughs) these confirmed bachelors who (laughs) live together. To me, watching this now, it's like, it's so overt. Oh, yeah. Like, it's there's this, I don't know how it got past the Hays Code, because it's just like, how can you not see this? <laughs> yeah, like, really, it's so, like, blindingly gay. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of got the impression that everybody was gay a little bit, like, minus, uh, you know, David's dad. But, like, Jimmy Stewart's character seemed a little fey, um, and, like, maybe he took advantage of his his <laughs> T- took brandon in the greek way <laughs> yeah i kind of got like there was some sort of yeah because if they're like if they're living their lives like they're you know better than everybody else like maybe they're like ah, eh, fuck it i can fuck a 16 year old if i want you know mm-hmm. so like that's what he was arguing yeah so possibly and then even um that guy that they brought over to like hook up with janet as like I was like, I don't think he knows he's gay yet, but he's probably <laughs> gay. Uh, there's a quote f- from you, actually. Uh, and I don't remember what we were talking about. You go, you know, I don't believe in gay face, but he has it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Kenneth, was that his name? Yeah. Yeah, Kenneth. Kenneth you're going to figure it out. <laughs> like. But like right after killing David, Brandon pulls out like a cigarette and starts smoking. Yeah. I'm like, oh, that's classic sex stuff right there yeah i mean rope rope is like a uh you know it's like fetishized as sort of this like object sure um and it could be a dick if you wanted it to be so you know he was hitchcock was very freudian in that way so why not (laughs) they're like handling that dick i mean (laughs) rope I mean, their body language was just so apparent to me, not just what they said, but just how they were like shoulder to shoulder so often. often. Yeah. It didn't, they seemed very comfortable with each other. Yeah. They, they, they seemed to want to be physically close to one another. Yeah. Cause no one else is that close to one another. Like no. even Mrs. Wilson and, uh, Jimmy Stewart, like she's trying to get close to him and he's playing into it. He knows that, that she likes him. But no, there's, there's no ounce. I mean, maybe it's just because I don't see any ounce of sexuality in Jimmy Stewart at all. But <laughs> I mean, you've seen Rear Window. Here's Grace Kelly, a literal princess who's like, pay attention to me. And he's like, no, I'm curious about this old large man across the street. I'll try take it off. <laughs> Daddy's hard now. <laughs> Have you ever heard of a blumpkin? <laughs> <laughs> now, you might not like it at first, but follow me into the bathroom.
Gross, Ryan. Gross. My God, What man. have we become? That's funny. Uh, where, do we, where to go from here? Did you see the cameo? The uh, uh, Hitchcock cameo? Well, I saw the one in the beginning, like when he's walking down the street, but apparently like his silhouette mm-hmm. is, is at the end. That's the one I saw. It's when uh, all the party guests are leaving, and I think it's a shot of Janet and Kenneth like getting their jackets on, and oh. the way it's shot, the camera's in the hallway, and they're like, it's pointed towards them out the window, and it's literally center frame. Oh, just really? a blinking red light. Oh, <laughs> and I'll have like, to look for it. It's so crazy that he planned that enough so that like, okay, we've got to get this camera to land at this point mm-hmm. so that I can see that blinking red light right in center frame. Like, I don't know. That's just working on a level that I <laughs> can't <laughs> imagine, you know? Yeah, yeah. Hitchcock really was like firing on all cylinders in this movie because when it does turn nighttime and like the... uh lights are flashing like yeah. i don't know why but it gave me anxiety like maybe it the like green remi- and red and stuff maybe it reminded me of like cops lights flashing or something oh yeah but there was something about the lights in that like the glowing lights from the the neon sign that really made me feel anxious and i really don't know what it was but it heightened it for me so it's like when jimmy stewart comes back to get his cigarette case god that's such a tense moment yeah and like everything that plays out once jimmy stewart comes back i'm like this is almost too tense like i'm getting anxiety (laughs) the whole movie is tense you know it's like master of suspense blah 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 but like we know that there's a fucking corpse in that thing and it could be discovered at any moment Mm -hmm. the whole time and then i think that that's also partially maybe this is to answer your earlier question part of the reason he want, he did these in like these long takes it's like there's sort of a tension in a wonder you know yeah, like when you're absolutely. when you're watching it like because there's always you know the chance that somebody could flub up or like something technically could go wrong or da 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 but like and like you just need those breaks i don't know i guess like we're just conditioned for it maybe but mm-hmm. like that adds a layer of tension anything could go wrong but anything could go wrong for our protagonist too i don't know why we as humans can tell this, but like we can tell when something's done for real. Mm -hmm. And I think when you cut, it triggers to our head that it's not necessarily for real. Like, I I don't know. I can't explain why, but I mean, it's like when we know something CG or, or we can tell something CG, like that takes a little bit of the fun out of it. Whereas if it's done for real, even if it's like a low stakes stunt or something, you know, if it's a Jackie Chan movie where a woman's being thrown into a pool like, Those are not low stakes. <laughs> like, that's somehow more thrilling than, like, a CG image of, like, a whole building exploding or mm-hmm. something, you know? Like any moment from Pacific Rim Uprising? Right. Which, you know, might be a fine film. It's not. I watched it this week. <laughs> but, you know, it's a different level of tension. Like, you know, in Police Story, when that woman's thrown into a pool, like, there's genuine anxiety that I feel when I watch that. Yeah. And I think that... A cut is a technique that, you know, while not on the same echelon as CGI, kind of plays into it. it. It cuts the tension a little bit, or it cuts the emotion short, or it cuts the mood. Sure. Um, well, then that makes me wonder, like, when he does do hard cuts in this film, which there's, like, two or three, like, they're probably very chosen, like, 
One is when he's talking about, when uh, Philip's talking about strangling chickens. It was a lovely Sunday morning in late spring. Across the valley, the church bells were ringing, and in the yard, Philip was doing likewise to the necks of two or three chickens. Oh, dear. <laughs> it was a task he usually performed very competently. But on this particular morning, his touch was perhaps a, a trifle too delicate. Because one of the subjects for our dinner table suddenly rebelled. Like Lazarus, he rose... That's a lie! And then it hard cuts to the face of Jimmy Stewart. So it's like that moment is like he makes that moment so that you know that, oh, now Jimmy Stewart thinks something's going up. Yeah. By the way, do you think chicken strangling is like a euphemism for being gay? Choking the chicken? <laughs> I think it's, I think they were like, that was another like gay thing. Oh, was it? That's, I feel like, yeah. That, that that was the subtext. Like, maybe it was, like, euphemism. Like, maybe, like, he caught him masturbating. Sure. Yeah, I could see that. Or I didn't think about it while watching blowing it, a but... farm boy or something like that. Oh, yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah, Because then later, when Jimmy Stewart's talking to Philip about it, he's like, you got real upset about choking, choking those chickens. <laughs> choking the chicken, like, I never huh? choked a chicken! One morning, I saw you display your handiwork. You're quite a good chicken strangler, as I recall. I don't know. It all seemed kind of seemed like a, a euphemism there. Mm. It all just red gay. <laughs> yeah, it all red gay to me. I mean, Hitchcock, of course, is is an expert at this. But like, as Jimmy Stewart was like piecing together the mystery, God, that was thrilling. You can see when he's talking to Mrs. Wilson and he's piecing things together when she's like, "They both woke up on the wrong side of the bed today." Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, also, super gay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And she's like, you should see the shit stains in their underwear. Because she just dishes anything. <laughs> but the, the look on his face as he pieced it together. And then right before he leaves and he puts on the wrong hat. And this is another scene that like I feel does better in a movie. And you, it, you see the initials on the inside of the hat, DK. Yeah. Like, oh my, like, I saw that. I, I forgot about the hat part, and I was like, holy shit. Like, he knows. Now he knows, yeah. And that's such a rush. Like, that's so satisfying. And he d- and not a word is said. Like, it's all visual. Mm-hmm. It's just great filmmaking. Mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. I haven't watched a Hitchcock film in a long time, and it was just so satisfying. Like, he's just so good. Uh, Hitchcock's sort of a palate cleanser for me. Like, if, I, if there's ever, like, a period where i've just watched some real bad movies like a lot in a row like five six i'm like these are all terrible <laughs> hitchcock's kind of what i go to even just, as like workman like movies have they always have something in them that makes them special you know if you name your favorite director i bet they only have like three maybe four masterpieces hitchcock's got like 20 yeah I think you'd have a hard time trying to find someone more influential on cinema like, period? Yeah. yeah. Really? A director with as large a body of work as him? Yeah, that'd be hard to do. Like, even, like, other of my favorites from the, the Golden Age of Hollywood, like, I'm a big, well, we're both big Billy, Billy Wilder fans. Love him. Even him, I only feel like he's got, like, maybe four masterpieces. And Rope, like I was saying earlier, is, like, you know, not even considered a masterpiece. Yeah. And we're gushing over and it. And it's great. yeah, yeah. yeah. He understood the medium and pushed it forward constantly. Constantly. 
Hitchcock. He's pretty Love good. <laughs> He's a pretty good director. <laughs> you should check out some of his work. Yeah. I don't even think you'll see Rope in like a top 10 Hitchcock list. Yeah. And that's fine with me, honestly. I like it, but it's definitely... He's got better films. Yeah. That's an easy argument to make. Yeah. But uh, I don't know. Good stuff. Good, yeah, good, real good stuff. Real good, good stuff. stuff. Been a long time since I'd seen this movie. It was, it was good to revisit it. Me too, and I enjoyed it this time through as well. Well, Matt, that means that now that we're done with this movie, we have to talk about what we're going to see next week. All right, it's my final installment of uh, Ryan is Wrong. Oh, Father. You're so wrong. I've picked a whopper. Like, I I picked a heavy hitter here. Oh, Um, I'm very curious. And uh, just in case, I'm bringing in backup. Oh, okay. Okay. This is news to me. <laughs> the movie is a streetcar named Desire. No, <laughs> no, come on. And I'm bringing in the guys from the Conversation Pieces podcast. Okay, okay. Uh, Kevin Clark, Travis Vogt. Oh, those rascals. They've, bo- they've both been on here before. Fun fact, neither of them have seen this movie before. <gasps> Oh my god! I hope so, they agree with me. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's a, they're impartial. It, yeah, it's a gamble. Like I'm bringing them on, but I don't know how they feel about the film. I like that we've got like a little uh, chance element here, where mm-hmm. they could they could land on either side of the coin. Yeah. No, like I'm gonna have to like, you know, get my like ducks in a row because they could both hate it. Yeah. You're gonna so. have to do some defending. Yeah. Or I'm gonna have to do some defending. Right. We don't know. Tune in next week. Tune in next week. <laughs> Streetcar Named Desire. Well, should we plug our junk and get the fuck out of here? Well, we have finished the chicken dinner. Close enough. Well, we have finished the chicken picnic. There was a chicken dinner in Rope, so... <laughs> well, first of all, why don't you go over to our website? And it's called xratedmovies.com, and that's where you can find out all our content that we've created over the past two plus years also that's where you can find that link to that gofundme so that we can get shaved (laughs) if you feel like (laughs) donating some dollars to that Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. follow us on twitter at x-rated movies follow us on facebook at rated x movies and uh shoot us an email uh x.rated.movies at gmail.com we're always looking for more opening banter I like Jessica Baxter's contribution today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely, uh, you know, we'll keep Ryan up at night. Very (laughs) disturbing. Thanks for taking me back to that shark place. (laughs) And, um, you know, don't forget that if you feel that Jimmy Stewart talking about Blumkins is your kind of podcast, make sure you let everyone know about it on iTunes as a review. Yeah, if you could leave five stars with a review of Jimmy Stewart Blumpkin, that'll be aces. We'll give you a shout out on the podcast. Yeah. (laughs) That about covers it, right? That's everything. Website, Twitter, Facebook, email, GoFundMe for shaving. Yeah, great. Great. Well, thank you for listening. And until next week, keep reaching for that rainbow.